Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello, everyone. My name is Nick, and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure, where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together... We can make a difference. Hi, and welcome to Verbal Diorama. I'm Em, and this is Emergency Protocol 90206. Calling Sky Captain. Come in, Sky Captain. Welcome to episode five, five episodes already. That's kind of crazy. My aim was to get an episode out in a week, but honestly, it's been a week of feeling rubbish with a terrible cold. So I tried, but I failed miserably. However, at the start of the week, I ran a poll on Twitter for my next episode. Um, The choices were John Carter or Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow. So you've seen the title of this podcast, so you know it's Sky Captain, but Edgar Rice Burroughs slash John Carter fans, fear not, for John Carter will definitely appear on this podcast at some point. And as the poll format was really fun and interesting, I've done it again. And I've even chosen the topic for episode six already. So this past week or so, apart from feeling a bit under the weather, um, I've also voiced a couple of segments for some of the shows. I did a bit for Geek Salad, um, my first international appearance. Um, and that was on shows from my childhood we'd love to see rebooted I also did a bit for show me the podcast which was on vampires because I hate horror but I love vampire movies Um, and I also contributed to uh, podcasters assemble um, on their retrospective for guardians of the galaxy volume two anyway the final thing I wanted to mention is roger rabbit Because Roger gave me serious stress dreams the night after I released because I realised a load of stuff I hadn't mentioned and someone who listened picked up on some of those things. So yeah, I forgot to talk that much about Roger and I didn't really say that much about Judge Doom. The thing is, sometimes you do forget to mention certain things. You know, I think all podcasters try and put a plan together of what they're going to say and When I was on Wulong Talks, I had this big long list of things that I wanted to talk to Jason about. And we finished the recording and the next morning I DM'd him in a panic because I realised we hadn't even talked about Goose. You know, Goose, the freaking MVP of that movie. And we still forgot. So, you know, sometimes that happens. It's not intentional, 
But if I forget something big, just tap me up on social media. I'm not afraid to admit when I make mistakes and I'll happily rectify anything I've got wrong in the next episode. So no probs. Also, I'm not going to say how long this episode is going to be like I did with Roger, because like most things, if you think something's going to be big and it turns out to not be so big, you kind of get a bit disappointed. And I don't want any length to be a disappointment. So let's just say this episode will probably be of average length. And then if it's bigger, you'll get a nice surprise. And so for this particular movie, Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, we're going to be going back to the year 2004, um, the same year Facebook was created and the same year Millie Bobby Brown from Stranger Things was born. I mean, oh my God, I feel so old. <laughs> we're going to be going all Ottensian diesel punk. And I promise this episode isn't just about Jude Law's beautiful face because this episode is all about Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. Shadow of evil falls across mankind. Come in, Sky Captain. A bold flying ace. This is Sky Captain. I'm on my way. One intrepid reporter. What's this all about? He's coming for me. Who's coming? And a courageous naval officer. What have you got me into this time, Joseph? Nothing you can't handle, Frankie are all that stand between the enemies of the future and the world of tomorrow. Captain, this is Dex. Do you read me? Come in. Hang on, Dex. I'm a little busy. Jude Law. Hold on. Gwyneth Paltrow. Can't anything ever be simple with you? And Angelina Jolie. It's a pleasure to finally meet the competition. Yo! I see it! Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow. To be honest, I'm just going to call it Sky Captain because Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow is a mouthful. Here's the plot synopsis of Sky Captain. In 1939, intrepid New York reporter Polly Perkins makes a connection between famous scientists suddenly disappearing around the world and a recent attack on the city by giant robots. Determined to find the solution, she seeks the help of her ex-boyfriend Joe Sullivan, also known as Sky Captain, the captain of a legion of pilots, to help her investigate the case. The two find a dying scientist, Dr Jennings, who secretly gives Polly two vials he states are crucial to the villain Totenkopf's plans. They return to Sky Captain's base just as robots attack. Sky Captain's right-hand man, Dex, is able to locate their source before he's captured by the machines. Polly and Joe then set off in search of Dr. Coden... Toten... Dr. Co... <laughs> Dr. Totenkopf. It's really hard to say. But with fuel running low, they need to stop on a Royal Navy flying aircraft carrier commanded by Frankie Cook, another of Joe's ex-lovers. Frankie leads the attack on Totenkopf's island lair, 
whilst Joe and Polly land on the island where they find robots leading animals two by two onto a rocket. Totenkopf believed destroying the current world would give humanity a chance to start again. The vials contain the genetic material for Adam and Eve. If the rocket reaches space, the afterburners will ignite the atmosphere and destroy the Earth. They find Totenkopf's decaying remains with a note saying, Forgive me. After his death, the machines continued on their programmed course. The rocket blasts off with Joe and Polly on board. Polly ejects all the animals safely in pods while Joe disables the rocket's blasters. They use the final pod to safely abandon the rocket before it explodes, landing back in the water around the island. So, you know, I just mentioned about Roger Rabbit and the fact that I didn't speak about the main antagonist, Judge Doom. Well, let me say this. I'm not going to talk much about Totenkopf because it's very apparent that I can't say that properly. So, Sky Captain the World of Tomorrow came out on the 17th of September 2004 in the US. It was directed and written by Kerry Conran and it starred Jude Law as Joe, Sky Captain Sullivan, Gwyneth Paltrow as Polly Perkins, Angelina Jolie as Frankie Cook and Giovanni Ribisi as Dex. Jude Law also has a producer credit on this movie along with his then-wife Sadie Frost, although by the time the movie was released, the pair had divorced. So Sky Captain was one of six movies starring Jude Law released in 2004. The others, if you're interested, were I Heart Huckabees, Alfie, Closer, The Aviator and A Series of Unfortunate Events. On the whole, Jude had quite a good 2004, apart from the whole divorce thing. And I have a particular fondness for the movie Alfie. Um, I actually named my last cat Alfie after that movie um, and Closer was a movie I enjoyed very much, although I've not seen it in a long time. Jude's father, Peter Law, actually had a small role in Sky Captain as Dr Kessler. Kerry Conran and his production designer brother Kevin had this idea for Sky Captain and they created a test trailer using a Mac and a blue screen just set up in Kerry's home, which he showed to producer John Avnet who was interested from the get-go, and together they worked on the screenplay for the following two years. They pitched it to studios for financial backing, but no one was interested in getting Sky Captain financed. So they ended up pitching to Aurelio De Laurentiis of the production company Filmoro. De Laurentiis believed in the idea so much that he financed the movie without any distribution deals, which is something that's kind of unheard of, I think, in Hollywood before any of the main cast was actually hired. Standing actors were hired and the production went through rehearsals. The entire movie was then test shot and recreated with animatics. So animatics is a preliminary version of the film. Uh, it's produced by shooting successive sections of a storyboard and they add a soundtrack to it so the general look and feel can be understood. Almost 100 digital artists, modellers, animators and compositors created complex multi-layer 2 and 3D backgrounds for the live action footage which hadn't even been filmed at that point. The CGI was so revolutionary it had to be created from scratch with completely new code. The whole movie was sketched out on storyboards and then recreated as CGI backdrops with all the 2D background photographs digitally painted to resemble 1939. And then grids were created to map character placement and actor movements. And then digital characters were created to stand in for those real actors. The grids were actually made into maps on the floor of the blue screen stage. This actually helped the proper human actors to move around and know where things would be. 
It was hoped by the Conran brothers that this new way of blue screen technology would make movies actually cheaper. Their initially requested $3 million budget somehow became $70 million, though, so probably not. Um, after filming ended, Kerry Conran and John Avnet put together a 24-minute presentation and they took it to every studio they could in order to get the financial backing necessary to complete the movie. There was actually a lot of interest at this point and they ended up choosing Paramount Pictures as they allowed the most creative control but gave enough support to fully finish the movie with the visuals necessary. And at this point, it has to be noted that Kerry Conran was working 18 to 20 hours a day, every day, to complete the movie on time. So there were several movies released in the mid-2000s that were filmed against all blue screen backdrops. 300 and Sin City are probably the most well-known. Sky Captain predates Sin City by a year and 300 by two years. So whilst Sin City and 300 get a lot of the credit for revolutionising this filmmaking style, it's actually Sky Captain that started it. Nowadays, this sort of style is commonplace, but in 2004, this was brand new technology and something that the members of this cast were completely new to. Speaking of the cast, let's just go through the main ones. So Jude Law saw Avnet's initial test trailer for the project and was instantly interested. This was even before any financial backing was given or a distributor was set. Avnet was keen on Jude Law because he'd done theatre, period drama and blue screen before, but he hadn't yet hit the big time and presumably he felt that the lead role in Sky Captain might do that. Plus, you know, he is really ridiculously good looking. I know I said I wasn't going to be making a big deal out of his looks because here at Verbal Diorama we don't objectify, but good God, he's so good looking and he's so good looking in this movie and pretty much every movie he's ever been in. Okay, that's all I'm going to say on that, honest. So Jude Law stated on his choice to join the movie. All I got at that early stage was that he'd used pretty advanced and unused technology to create a very retrospective look. What was clear was also that at the centre was a really great cinematic relationship, which you could put into any genre and it would work. You know, the kind of bickering relationship. I always like to call it the African Queen meets Buck Rogers. So Jude Law's production company, Natural Nylon, was founded by Law, his then-wife Sadie Frost, and other icons of 1990s-2000s British cinema, such as Johnny Lee Miller, Ewan McGregor and Sean Pertwee, along with Damon Bryant, Bradley Adams and Jeff Dean. It was originally formed in 1997 in order to support British talent in the industry and keep it in the UK. Natural Nylon was one of the production companies behind Sky Captain, and Sky Captain itself was mostly filmed in London. Gwyneth Paltrow got the gig based on the good word of her friend and producer of the movie, Jude Law. They'd worked together previously on The Talented Mr Ripley. Jude Law suggested she was perfect for the role of intrepid reporter Polly. And whilst a lot of this podcast will probably be dedicated to Jude Law, I have to give Gwyneth Paltrow her dues and say that she's stunning in this movie. It's not a meaty role or given much depth, but the way Paltrow's face just lights up the screen, it feels very reminiscent of a 1930s starlet. She's definitely someone who was pretty as a younger woman, but has just blossomed into literally one of the most beautiful women in the world. And that's a really hard feat against the next person I'm going to mention. So Angelina Jolie is third billing, but a fairly small role. Um, she spent three days filming her scenes after completing the second Tomb Raider movie. 
Although Angelina's time on set was short compared to the others, she did a lot of research and even spoke to retired Air Force pilots to understand their lingos and mannerisms. Angelina was pretty much coming up to the high point of her career at this point and well into the category of the most beautiful woman in the world. Her role is quite small and she retains this Lara Croftian accent for Frankie, but her presence in the movie and as technically the other woman who broke up Joe and Polly is interesting that when Frankie is described, her gender isn't mentioned. It's obviously done on purpose with the unisex name Frankie, but if you know Angelina's in the movie, it's very clear she's Frankie. Um, Frankie even confirms Polly as the competition. Um, I'm never a massive fan of movies that pit women against each other based on their relationship with a man. But apparently, according to BechdelTest.com, this movie passes the Bechdel test. If so, I consider this a light pass on technicality because Frankie and Polly never really have a proper conversation with each other. And most of what they do talk about is Joe. But a light pass is still a pass, I guess. The late Laurence Olivier was Jude Law's suggestion for the posthumous role of Totenkopf. Um, His likeness was digitally reproduced from archive BBC footage. Um, To be honest, the characters feel very secondary to the main star of the movie. And the main star of the movie is how it looks. Some character development is attempted. And the main relationship between Joe and Polly is hinted at, originally ending on a bit of a sour point. However, there's a, he makes a point of naming his plane H-11-OD, which spells Polly upside down and back to front. The movie itself was shot over only 26 days on a soundstage in London. After each day of shooting, footage was edited in London and then all edited footage was then sent over to LA to have digital backdrops and CG inserted using just bog standard Apple Mac computers. The only practical background was Polly Perkins' office, as that was shot later and they didn't have time to go through the same lengthy process for just that one scene. The movie contains over 2,000 visual effect shots and cost, well, like we've said, purportedly $70 million in 2004. Comparably, Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End contained the same amount of visual effect shots but cost $300 million in 2007. That's only three years later. But then you had Johnny Depp's salary to take into account, I guess. The style of the movie is something that's frequently mentioned. Now, I didn't know anything about diesel punk, let alone Ottensian-style diesel punk. So here's a brief rundown on what that means and why Sky Captain represents this style of diesel punk. There's actually a really great article at The Gatehouse which can be found in the web.archive.org, written in 2008, which details the two flavours of diesel punk. So I'm going to quote from it. And even though technically the site doesn't exist anymore, I'll link to it in the show notes just in case anyone wants more information on the two distinct types of diesel punk. So here's a brief excerpt from that article. Elaborating upon the observations of the Flying Fortress about the genre, we have established two kinds of diesel punk, differing in setting, style and influence, the Ottensian, of which Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow is representative, is typically set in a 1930s that was never bothered by a Great Depression and is therefore more of a continuation of the Roaring Twenties, its optimism and excitement only strengthened by further progress. This buoyant and most pervasive of Ottensian diesel punk shares its era with more film noir styles, 
hard-boiled detective stories such as The Shadow and The Big O, which depict the negative effects of the era's laissez-faire attitude, the rise of totalitarianism, technocratic perception and the grit and oil and dust and mud of pollution. The movie's visual style certainly makes it unique, but then kind of not really. It's very reminiscent of the Studio Ghibli movie La Puta, Castle in the Sky. In fact, a lot of Miyazaki's work depicts what could be seen as a diesel punk or steampunk style. But although the post-World War era links the two styles, there are a few distinct differences between diesel punk and steampunk, such as clothing styles, fuel types and ideologies. Trust me when I say that researching this movie has really opened up my eyes because, honestly, I thought they were one and the same. And there's every possibility I'm still not 100% accurate on the depiction of diesel punk in Miyazaki's work. But trust me, Sky Captain is 100% diesel punk. Promise. I also want to talk a little bit about the score because it's wonderful, but also, well, it could bring to mind another dashing, blonde, gorgeous hero you might know. Let me go into this in a bit more detail. Okay, so here's the first part of Sky Captain's score. And here's the score for Captain America, the first Avenger. In fact, notice a few similarities between these movies in general. You wouldn't be alone. Sky Captain definitely evokes the same feel of the other captain, the ground captain. Captain America, the first Avenger, was a movie I thought was genuinely dull on first watch, but it's grown on me exponentially over time. And now I genuinely think it's one of the most underrated movies in the entire MCU. But the similarities to Sky Captain are undoubtable. There's the inclusion in both movies of the World's Fair in 1939. 
In Sky Captain, this is referenced in the World of Tomorrow part of the title, as well as Kerry Conran's admission that the style of the movie was inspired by Norman Belgedes and Hugh Ferris, designers who contributed exhibits for the 1939 event. For Captain America, the World's Fair represents the new world Cap himself will experience, the retro future of the super serum he's injected with, and the fact he wakes up in the modern day after being frozen in the ice. Villain-wise, in Sky Captain, you have the maniacal German scientist, Dr. Totenkopf, (laughs) or you have the maniacal German scientist, Johann Schmidt. Um, I feel like I'm starting to scrape the barrel a little bit, but nevertheless, both movies are set in New York, uh, albeit Sky Captain is 1939 and the first Avenger is 1942. And let's not even go there with the connection between Frankie and Fury's eye patches. They're on different eyes, though, so at least that's something. I feel like in a post-Captain America the First Avenger world that more people might actually be willing to give Sky Captain that chance they might not have before. It's different enough from the First Avenger whilst also embracing the similarities. I mean, sure, Sky Captain came out first, but I'd wager more people have seen the First Avenger and liked it than have ever seen Sky Captain. In addition, the similarity between both of them and Joe Johnston's other movie, 1992's The Rocketeer, is almost tangible. Okay, so full disclosure. Remember the movie I was going to do for episode two, which then turned into episode three, but then I did Dread instead. So that movie was supposed to be The Rocketeer. I will definitely do The Rocketeer because I've always felt the show that I want to kind of do a variety of different things. So The Rocketeer will come, but it might take a while. And I'm not sorry that I did Dread because I feel like Dread was just perfect for that. It seems as though I have a fondness for Atenzian Diesel Punk, though, because The Rocketeer, Sky Captain and The First Avenger are all examples of this particular style of Diesel Punk. And I have a genuine love and respect for each of those movies. So when I mentioned on social media, specifically Twitter, uh, that I was doing Sky Captain because it, it won the Twitter poll, I sort of asked for general thoughts and comments. And the response was by far the biggest I've had for any movie I featured so far. It was mixed, but on the whole positive, which I think sums the reception of this movie perfectly. So I'm just going to go through some of those comments. So at Timeshifters Pod said, In a nutshell, I appreciate the film for what it tried to do. It created an incredible world that paid homage to the past films and cartoons, while also laying the groundwork for films to come as far as the effects and tools used. At The Real Pundits said, Fun movie that takes me back to old sci-fi films. I watch it once a year. At Unreally Dad Nuso said, I feel that it's a film damaged by its casting. I think it was very difficult to empathise with any of the three main actors. At Vincent Asher said, I like this movie. I'll admit it's not the best movie, but it's campy and fun. At Launching the Pilot said, Doesn't look as good as I remember. Mm, yeah. Um, at 30 Podcast said, I really liked Sky Captain. Worked in a movie theatre as a projectionist when it came out, so I've seen bits and pieces of it a lot. Since The Rocketeer is one of my all-time favourites, I consider Sky Captain a spiritual successor to that one. Obviously. At Screen Redeem said, I still love just having this movie on. It's not all that entertaining, in my opinion, but its commitment to the aesthetic is wonderful. At Soup Complex said, I love the aesthetic, but the execution just misses. I still have a soft spot for it, though. And at Bingeables Pod said, Can I just say that Jude Law is... Hot, hot, hot. 
And to that, I reply, well, yes, yes, you can, because he is. Obviously, I mentioned that our good friends over at Wulong Talks. And um, when I was on their show, obviously, I went on with uh, Jason and uh, Rich, his uh, partner in crime, couldn't attend that particular recording. Um, But when Rich found out that I was doing uh, an episode on Sky Captain and specifically Jude Law, and as he's a self-confessed massive Jude Law fan, he wanted to say something. So he put some words together and I'm going to tell you what he said. So Rich from Wulon Talks said, It was definitely a film ahead of its time. And I think Hollywood-wise, it should have been a magical opportunity for Jude Law to really show that he could do a somewhat action role. But I felt that he was slightly overexposed at that point. I remember Chris Rock making a joke about him being in every movie that year, but not understanding why, as he didn't feel he was a good actor. I think that was the nail in the coffin for Jude Law. I also think it was a brave film that chose quite a distinct genre. It's very easy to do a sci-fi like Star Wars and Star Trek, whereas I feel this film didn't get the recognition it deserves, especially since it was an homage to what some people can consider real original sci-fi like Metropolis. So generally, it seems to be a movie people remember fondly, and it should be. Critically, it was highly regarded, but ultimately the movie just wasn't a financial success when it was released, and it flopped. It ended up only making just $58 million from a purported $70 million budget. Although, as I've mentioned, Kevin Conran disputes that $70 million budget. He claims it was actually more along the lines of $20 million. On Rotten Tomatoes, Sky Captain received 71% from critics, but only 46% on the audience scale. And this is pre-Captain Marvel, so review bombing wasn't a thing. It's interesting, really, the reception I got from just one post on Twitter is hardly indicative of the general public's feelings. But it's interesting that the audience review score is so much lower on Rotten Tomatoes. You usually expect it to be the other way around. The movie's style might lend itself to critics, but perhaps regular audiences were put off by the technology, as it really wasn't commonplace back then. New technology does tend to put people off at first, and the complete blue screen style, honestly looks nowadays quite dated. However, it doesn't make the movie any less enjoyable, in my opinion. So, Kerry Conran left the industry after Sky Captain flopped. He directed a Christmas ad for Coca-Cola, and he did release an animated short movie in 2012 called Gumdrop, but otherwise, he was more or less retired from the industry. Both Kerry and his brother Kevin were highly introverted and insecure, and most people believe they were never really comfortable in Hollywood. Awards-wise, Sky Captain was considered by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences as one of the seven movies for achievement in visual effects at the 77th Academy Awards. However, it was actually never included in the eventual nominations and that accolade ultimately went to Spider-Man 2, which I re-watched recently and it still looks and feels great today, which unfortunately is an achievement Sky Captain doesn't quite reach. And so, what is the legacy of Sky Captain? Well, look on your DVD and Blu-ray shelves. The technology this movie helped create created a whole new generation of movie-making practices that pretty much all movies use to some degree today. It pays homage to the movies of the 1930s, whilst also embracing the retro future. You know, it's both nostalgic and futuristic. At a time when movie studios were starting to rely on sequels, Sky Captain was an original story starring new characters and arguably some of the finest young talent in Hollywood at the time. 
New ideas are a scary thing in Hollywood. Even now, especially now, the MCU as we know it owes more to Sky Captain than you might think. Taking that into account and the sheer time and effort it took to actually get made in the first place, you'd think a lot more people might know about it, but they don't. And I think it's time to change that, don't you? Thank you for listening. If anyone you know is looking for a movie, recommend Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow. If anyone knows Jude Law and he's looking for a date on Friday night, recommend me. If you like this episode, I've also done episodes on Titan AE, Captain Marvel, Dread and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And they can all be downloaded wherever you get your podcasts from. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Verbal Diorama. You can email me general hellos, feedback or suggestions, uh, verbaldiorama at gmail.com. And if you like what I do and you want to give me a great review, you can do so on iTunes and I'd really appreciate that. Or if you'd like to support the show financially, I set up an account on Ko-fi. I know that a lot of podcasts uh, prefer and support Patreon, but I don't want any listeners to feel like they have to commit to a monthly payment for Verbal Diorama. So if you want to buy me a coffee, which honestly I pretty much run on anyway, you can do so. Uh, the link is ko-fi.com slash Verbal Diorama. Um, no pressure, no sales, no tricks and or promises. I'm just honestly grateful that you're listening right now. But it's there if you have the money to spare. And it helped me tremendously to produce upcoming episodes because you can never have too much caffeine. What? Doctor's advice? Nah, caffeine's fine. Oh, and if you've reached this far, my next episode is going to be about 1998's Pleasantville. You're welcome. Thanks again for listening, you wonderful, wonderful person. Bye!